Hello innovators, explorers and risk takers. Welcome to another episode of the Web3 Podcast. I'm your host Sam Kamani and today I'm thrilled to interview Andrew Smith on this episode. Andrew is a true visionary in this space and with his latest venture Versatus Labs, he is revolutionizing the space for Web3 development. He is making it more accessible and making it more flexible for developers to work in this space. He is at the forefront of revolutionizing how we think about blockchain and Web3 in the first place. If you are interested in learning about the current state of Web3 and development and what's coming in this space, then this episode is for you. Also, I do not run any ads on this podcast. My only ask is that you share this episode on your LinkedIn or Twitter or your social media and do not take anything talked about in this episode as investment advice. Always, always do your own research. With that out of the way, let's get into it. So, Andrew, it's great to have you on the show. Would love to learn what you're building, especially I know what you're building would be great for developers. And before we get started, I want to talk about Token 2049. And what was your, just like an overview, what difference did you see in Token 2049 compared to other events in US? Yeah, so I, I, Token was the third of four conferences in a row that I went to. So I was, I was uh, already starting to get a little bit exhausted by that time. But yes, I was at Korea Blockchain Week before that and part of that Stanford Blockchain Conference. And then I went yes. to Maine afterwards. Token, I think, has always been a little bit more finance oriented as its yeah. main net. I got part of that is just the location of it. Obviously, Singapore being a financial capital of the world, same with New York. But one thing that I definitely noticed about both KBW and then Token after that is that the outlook for this technology is significantly more optimistic in Asia than it, is, than it seems to be in the Western world. Uh, there, I think that there's a, there's a greater understanding of what decentralization and you know, unstoppable technology, censorship resistance, and all of those things that, that we talk about a lot but haven't quite lived up to what all of that means for society over there. I think a lot of the people that, that live in Singapore obviously come from other Southeast Asian countries and East Asian countries, many of which have suffered through hyperinflation, many of which have seen the havoc that sort of despotic and totalitarian governments can have on society. So I think that there's a greater understanding of the power of decentralization, the power of this technology in particular, and what decentralized finance and a decentralized internet can mean to society. It just seems to be like less of a focus on where current token prices are. Uh, whereas yes. I think in the West, there's a lot of speculators. There's a lot of people that, that their primary concern with this technology is whether or not token prices go up or down. Over there, there seems to be a little bit more of a conviction that this is the next wave of technological revolutions. It's refreshing in a lot of ways. I also think that there's less of a kind of wait and see, wait, let's wait for the regulators to come up with good rules, right? There's yeah. less of that over there. They just do things and, and let their governments catch up. Here, there yeah. seems to be a, a pause or a stalling. Part of that's we're in the midst of a bear market, but part of it is also, and I see this a lot on crypto Twitter and I see this a lot. I hear it a lot from other people. There's this desire to be regulated. Which when I first came into the space, it was my understanding that the goal of this technology was to effectively make a lot of the regulations technologically obsolete. I still think, in my opinion, that should be a goal. Uh, I think that we can replace the archaic bureaucratic regulatory process with more self-governance, with distributed governance, and with models that actually solve the problems that regulators for decades have promised to solve to with very little uh, actual, very, they really haven't solved the problems, right? So I think that to me is still really important. And I think in Asia, they see that in a way that we don't. There's a lot of people in this space in the US that come from traditional finance and mm -hmm. are hyper obsessed with getting institutional adoption, whatever that might mean. I don't know if yeah. when they say institutions, do they mean pension funds and endowments? Do they mean banks? I, I don't, hedge funds. I don't know what they mean. And it could be a mix of all of that, but. There's an obsession with, yes. yeah, 
And, and there seems to be this obsession with institutional ad- adoption, which, again, I was of the opinion that the goal was to uh, replace those institutions, that those institutions had failed us time and time again. And the goal here was to remove the intermediaries, uh, remove the counterparty risk, create more transparency and more honesty through technology. So I sometimes I get very frustrated with the American crypto scene because there's this, and sorry if this is not the most couth way of saying it, but there's this, oh yes, regulate me daddy type mentality of, of looking <laughs> up to the government and being like, oh, come help us out, impose regulations on us so that we can get institutional adoption. And in my opinion, I think that's the wrong that's not the right way to approach this industry. The right way to approach this industry is to build stuff, ask for forgiveness rather than permission, and plow ahead with building new technologies that are, they're going to actually improve society. Yeah, but the thing is, in Asia, you can build stuff. In US, yeah. things don't get built anymore. It's you look at a like a postcard picture of San Francisco or LA or or any big American city from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and now, and they look the same, more or less. Yeah. There's no change. Yep. The only change is that there's more homeless and people addicted with drugs on the street and more crime. That's the only change. Whereas in Asia, you see a picture of a city from 30 years ago to now, it's, or, or like, it's completely unrecognizable. It's, you see a picture of Dubai from 30 years ago or Singapore from 30 years ago, and they're like, they, they can build stuff. And the regulation yeah. moves with the innovation, like it's instant. There is no infighting. In US, there is yeah. just the only thing that happens is infighting. Anything becomes political and infighting and nothing gets done pretty much. That's my yeah. experience. Even though there is so much talent, there is so much money, so many VC funds ready to fund, but the, the US has some structural issues. I feel like, because I've been going to US yeah. since 2008 every year, multiple times, and I've seen nothing moves, nothing changes. Uh, Come to Miami because we're built, we're building buildings here in Miami at, at rapid pace. It's, it's know, one of the great spots of, of the U.S. But I would 100% agree. With you. Actually, after Singapore, I spent a few days in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. We have a couple of investors and some of our whitelisted validators and, and for a test net. And then one employee is based in Vietnam. And man, oh man, I was blown away with how much development is occurring in Ho Chi Minh City. And in a lot of ways, even though technically they still have a big communist government, in a lot of ways, Vietnam is actually more capitalist than America. Yeah, uh, so there's so it, Singapore like yeah. has one government for ages. It does not. You do They have the best of the both worlds. It's, they have given their countries a stable government without the infighting and the bickering and the waste of energy that happens. In U.S. that people are wasting their time and energy on bickering on Twitter or whatever it might be. Instead, use that energy for good use. There's a fantastic, and this, to this point, there's a fantastic quote by Noam Chomsky, who is a famous linguist yes. and, and philosopher and, and anarchist. And the, the quote, and I'm going to butcher it, but I'll paraphrase it. Effectively, what he said is the best way to control a population is to have extreme, it's in his book, Manufacturing Consent is to have extremely heated debates within very narrow windows of ideas. So have real, should we have a 39% top marginal tax rate or a 35% top marginal tax rate and go at each other's throats over this narrow idea that really nobody cares one way or the other, right? Like yes. this is 39% or 35%, oh, barely anybody actually pays that rate. Nobody actually cares, but you have heated debates over these really narrow things that most people don't even care about. But everybody's on the same page when it comes to, do we need to go to, to war somewhere? Do, should we print more money? Should we bail out the banks? Both parties agree like 99% of the time on all the big issues that the Americans actually care about. But when it comes to these issues that really Americans, one way or the other, I don't really care. They, that's where all of the heated debate is. And it, it, it's, I think in a lot of ways, it's intentional. There's also a great George Carlin quote where somebody is telling him, oh, there's no big conspiracy and the governments aren't getting together to screw you over. And he says, there doesn't have to be when interests converge. All these people went to the same universities. Yes. All these people, they, they were mentored by the same people. They worked their way up through politics, surrounded by the same people. They hire from the same pool of staffers. Uh, their advisors are all the same. Their fundraisers and donors are all the same. So they don't, there doesn't need to be a, con- a, a conspiracy. They yes. all have the same ideas. And, and one of those ideas right now, to bring it back around to what the, the core topic here is that crypto is dangerous. And uh, in some ways, frankly, it is, right? Like yeah. it took their power. 
uh, crypto can be very dangerous. And I think one of the, the, the takeaways from my trip to Asia was that the Asian nations are reveling in this opportunity. They think this is their opportunity. This industry is an industry that they can finally kick America in the butt and, and that they can actually dominate this industry in a way that they haven't in the past. So I think that it's really interesting to me how optimistic the Asian nations are about this technology and it's refreshing. I think that there's a, a more of an organic grassroots movement from the Asian communities to adopt this technology. So yeah, I was very, I was blown away as, as it sounds like you were. Yeah. Uh, by what I saw in, in Korea and Singapore. Uh, and I hope to be able to spend more time there in the future. Oh, fantastic. No, it is. It is very true. So tell me about Versatis and how's Versatis, which is the L1 chain, how's that different to other L1 chains? And why do we need one more L1 chain? Yeah, so first off, we, we consider ourselves a decentralized compute stack more yeah. so than an L1. It is true that we do have our own L1 protocol. There are a couple of reasons for that, which we can get into. But really the core... Uh, of the technology we're building is our decentralized compute stack, which we like to say it enables developers to build without barriers. Uh, so in Web3, there's currently some significant barriers to entry for developers, uh, primarily with the one that we would all know and is very obvious is the language barrier. Developers require to learn a new language in order Solidity, to build most in Web3. Solidity, yeah, move, Rust, which is a general purpose language, but uh, yes. is, is a very difficult general purpose language to, to learn. I'm a big fan of Rust. I've been writing Rust code since before uh, Solana, made it pop Solana made it popular to do. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's it's a very new language. There aren't a lot of experts in that, that, that yeah. write Rust code. And it's it's got a very steep learning curve. So it's difficult. On the flip side, Solidity is really not that hard to pick up. Yeah. But it's very difficult to master. And it, there's a lot of vulnerabilities. There's a lot of foot guns. If you talk to any of the major smart contract auditors, they'll tell you they really don't love auditing Solidity code because it's just, mm-hmm. There's all sorts of hidden traps in it. And then every L1 that's come out seems to have another language. So move with Sui and Aptos, Fuel Labs, it's the Sway language with ICP back in the day was Matoko. And one after another, after another, Cardano uses what is effectively a dead language in Haskell. Yes, Almost nobody writes Haskell code anymore. So it's been one after another. I, I call it the Tower of Babel of Web3. Like, how are we going to, how are you going to, build applications across different ecosystems and hire a team and build a business around your application. If you're having to hire siloed off groups of niche developers that write in a niche language, it makes it very difficult. So what we enable is for developers to build in any language with their existing tools. And here's an important part on any chain. So not only on our own L1, but we also, part of our roadmap is to enable this functionality on top of Ethereum and the various L2s. Uh, we're working very closely with Eigenlayer to make that happen, to, to build this as a pure play AVS on top of Eigenlayer, uh, to be able to provide that sort of EVM compatibility, but with all of the flexibility of language agnosticism and tooling agnosticism. We also remove some of the complexities around compiler and, and, and runtimes. So we abstract all of that away. Our compute nodes, they run what, what we call a compute agent. And that compute agent basically takes the code in a config file, parses the config file, and handles all of the, basically we abstract away all the compiler and runtime abstraction complexities. And we also don't like, like the L2s and, and app chains require you to do. We don't require developers to manage their own network or build their own sequencer network or validator network to run their own infrastructure. We, they're not going to have these massive base layer taxes as a result of having to send a whole day's worth of state updates back to the base layer. So. All of those benefits go directly to the developer. It makes their life easier. It makes the entrepreneurial developer able, it provides them the ability to hire from bigger talent pools, maintain their code better, prototype faster. They can go back and optimize in, in lower level languages later, but maybe they want to build a prototype in Python and test it. Yeah. They can, it so all of these things that you would normally do in a web two business that's really not possible today in web three, we're providing that functionality to developers and, and just to wrap all of this up, where we see ourselves, I, it's not a perfect analogy, but the analogy I like to use is blockchains and their node networks are the new data centers. They're the future of data centers. Yes, uh, It's where all the data lives and it's where all the programs are going to be hosted in the future. The data center by itself doesn't really provide a lot of value. It's a commodity business. It's capital intensive. You set up all your servers. There's lots of maintenance, but margins are relatively low. 
what made AWS and Google Cloud and Azure really popular were the tools they built on top to enable developers to easily and efficiently utilize their data centers. Yes. And that's where we see ourselves. We're the tooling layer on top of all these various blockchains that enable developers that enable developers to to actually easily and efficiently utilize those blockchains and build on top of them. That's very interesting. Even though we like doing things on chain, as you have to pay, you still have to pay. Someone has to pay. Like users have to pay for gas fees, or, or and there, there's a there is a cost to it. The time cost, the developer cost, and and all sorts of things so far. So. I'm sure you knew in the 2021 NFT boom, even though there were a lot of things written on chain, they were still using data centers. So the chain on chain was just the link to the data center, yep. to the file staying in a data center. So it still had the same issue of centralization. It did solve nothing in my opinion. You're 100% correct. And I would add to that even today, the vast majority of front ends, which is how people actually interact yes. with decentralized applications, there's nothing decentralized about them. Yeah. They're hosted on AWS or Google Cloud. Or Azure. Yes. It's the same thing it's as a regular web app. And, and, and God forbid the US government tells AWS to take down Uniswap's GUI, which is probably hosted on AWS or Google Cloud or one of them. Uniswap's volume is going to go through the floor. It's going to drop off like crazy because most people aren't going to use a command line interface to interact with an application. Uh, so that is another thing that our compute stack enables are the development of decentralized, full stack decentralized applications, mobile decentralized applications. Now, these are two different components. Obviously, the smart contracts are the part that, that's on chain and inter interacts with yes. the blockchain, but then also being able to verify that you're interacting with the correct user interface over a decentralized compute network we believe is really important. If we ever want to see through the vision of unstoppable technology, we also need the front ends and the ways that users actually interact with applications to be unstoppable as well. Yeah, we, exactly. And we do need them to be decentralized as well. So how do you decentralize them? Because I thought there would be a huge cost of time and expense, whether it's gas fees or whatever, to put the front end of an app on chain. You don't need to put it on chain. And I think that there's a lot of times people, in fact, even the backends don't need to be on chain. And we can talk about that a little bit. But so I think there's a lot of times people mistake on chain for being decentralized. All decentralized means is there's a network of nodes that are not controlled by a single entity that are not in the same geographical region that have redundant copies of whatever that data or program or whatever it is. So the way that we enable this is we have a network of compute nodes. Uh, those compute nodes can can run smart contracts that directly interact with 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 blockchains, or they can simply serve up you know, a front end, and all of the nodes in the network have a redundant copy of all of the programs in the network. So that's effectively how we do that. Every program in our network is effectively its own virtual machine. Uh, yeah. So we call them we call them nano runtimes, and they're powered by something called a unikernel. And what's really great about this unikernel technology is it sounds like if you were to do this, be like, wow, that must take a lot of resources, right? You've got all of these applications with their yeah, own yeah. VM running in the background at all time. The benefit of the unikernel and the way we design, the reason we chose this, chose to design it this way is that unikernels have extremely fast boot times. So they, they boot in, in roughly three milliseconds. It depends on the, the virtual machine monitor that you're using, but that's yes. about the average boot time is three milliseconds. So they don't need to be running in the background. So you are sacrificing storage because they're going to be bigger than just a plain old Solidity binary or Rust binary, but storage is cheap and abundant. Uh, where, where they're, what, what's not abundant and what's not cheap is compute. So instead of having this monolithic VM or a series of monolithic VMs to enable these different languages, every application has its own very small virtual machine, smaller than a micro virtual machine. You know, you might call it a nano virtual machine that is able to, it's built just for that one program and is able to be sleeping and effectively shut down on the nodes in our network. And then when there's an interaction with it, it can spin up, it can launch, do whatever execution it needs to do, return any results and then shut down again. So the way that we enable this from a smart contract perspective on, on other chains really depends on that chain. So for something that needs to be like EVM compatible, for example, 
we would need to use cryptographic proofs to prove the results of that compute. So we'd use something like a ZK proof. Yeah. For a network such as Solana, we can compile these unikernels down to eBPF bytecode directly and have them run as Solana programs directly on Solana. For our own chain, we use a quorum-based approach. Uh, so we have validator quorums. 60% of that quorum needs to do the execution and agree on the results before it moves forward. So you call it optimistic transaction validation with consensus, with, with, you know, effectively a pre-run consensus prior to those results updating or altering state. So there, there's, it's not a one size fits all solution. It's modular and extensible and able to be fit to the use case that it's needed for. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting way of doing things. So I can see why it would be, yeah, it would be something that developers would like to see in this space. What's your biggest challenge currently? Honestly, probably just breaking through the noise, which yes. from a, a crypto Twitter and general crypto community and even in the VC world is a little bit of a challenge. I think for our target market, which is really onboarding Web2 developers into Web3, it's a little less of a challenge because they're not paying attention yeah. to the noise. So focusing on delivering the best possible product and then meeting them where they already are with you know, examples and templates and tutorials and learning structured learning paths and all the different things that they would need to adopt our tools. Uh, that should be, I don't want to say it's easy, it's never easy, but that should be relatively easier than breaking through the crypto community noise. The crypto community noise is very loud. There's a handful of what you would call KOLs. Most of them are financially vested in specific <laughs> networks, specific coins, specific applications. Yes. Uh, so that's very difficult to break through. It's not, it's not cheap or easy to do. But I think that there are ways to do it. And, and we're working on that. We haven't really announced ourselves that much yet. Uh, we're starting to do, get a little bit more press. We're starting to get a little bit more attention. Uh, but we've been, you know, hyper focused on the engineering task at hand. So we just have to make sure that we ride the momentum that we do have and the, and we take advantage of the opportunities that we do have. That said, a lot of times you raise your next round or you do this or that and an announcements about it. And, and all of a sudden you'll find a bunch of fans who believed in you from day one, right? So that there, there are ways to break through. We're also working on some research. We've done some very interesting research. We recently commissioned a survey of developers to discover what the apprehensions preventing them from building in Web3 are. The results from that are really interesting and really promising. And also to figure out like, okay, how do we reach you? How do you like to be communicated to about new technologies, new tools, stuff like that, I think will help us. It'll help us to reshape the current narrative. We believe there's way too much focus at this stage on acquiring users. Users will come if there's applications that they actually want to use. So our focus really needs to be on acquiring developers, getting developers into the ecosystem, having them build applications that users actually want to use. And then the users will come. Right now, the majority of crypto users are, are just gamblers. They're speculators. Uh, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that, but that's just where we're at because there's not a lot of hyper-useful applications for them to use. Uh, so that's our focus, and we want to reshape the narrative so that the rest of the ecosystem and the rest of the crypto community is also focused on, let's bring on more developers. Let's make developers' lives easier. Let's make developers' jobs more rewarding. And let's provide them the support and resources and financial incentives to do get a couple of killer applications out there, then the users will come. Exactly. You said the last line pretty much said it all in that you need a couple of killer applications because people do what's available to them. So right now, the only way or for them available in most of the developed world is just gambling on some DeFi things or NFT things or just pretty much buying close, selling high. <laughs> that's pretty yeah. much all, all they're trying to do. And and that's what's mostly available. Gaming had some promise, but a lot of the games in the end turned out to be the same thing. People were getting into it so that they can buy the NFT gaming asset for cheaper or, or make yeah. money off it pretty much. So it, it needs that those killer apps and stuff. There is, there are so many people building so many things and something should get bigger just like stable coins did and people use stable coins to transfer value all the time now like all, yep. all around the world so that is a yep. real utility we just need to build more real utility talking about it have you seen any other apps or any other projects coming out that have some real utility or, or some utility that you would use yourself uh so i think friend tech and then frenzy on solana are is interesting 
I think there's probably some iteration that needs to be done to really find product market fit across the general community. It reminds me a lot. There's a social media site called Locals, which is not by no means the biggest, but it's effectively the way it works is you can have a free community that kind of follows you and you have your public posts, similar to like how Twitter has subscriptions now where most people just see your regular posts, but then you can also post stuff just for your subscribers. So there's gated communities underneath them. And I think token, yeah, it's similar to Patreon. And I think token gating is one of the major use cases for, particularly as it relates to social and communities for crypto technology. And I do think there's an opportunity to capture that. I'm not totally sold on hyper-financializing everything. I think that we can, tokenization has use cases beyond financialization and creating value. It can also be used to store data. It can also be used to encrypt data. It can also be, there's a lot of different use cases for it. And I think we'll flesh that out. I'm personally a systems engineer. I probably, I, I wish I was creative enough to be a consumer app developer. There's a lot more money to be made in consumer app development than systems engineering. Unfortunately, that's where the way my mind works. So I, I try to avoid saying what I think will be the killer use case for this because I honestly would probably be wrong. There are some interesting ideas out there, though. I, I think recently there was another application that launched on on Solana that enabled users to like tip, to send an email and tip. And the bigger the tip, the higher priority the email would be. So if you send a free email, you might not, it probably won't get read, but you could add $10 to it to get them to read it and <laughs> respond to you. I think I, that's really interesting particularly for prominent people who get tons of emails. I think there's really interesting advertising use cases behind that. How much are you willing to pay for me to view your email and respond to it? There, there's, so there's things we can do with this technology that, that solve real world problems that make people's lives more convenient, that make their lives more affordable, you know, increase efficiency and productivity of businesses. There are real world use cases for that. I, I think there's uh, the potential... I, one of the use cases I always talk about is having some sort of encrypted accounting software that's on a public ledger that can't be cheated, that would reduce the audit cost of publicly traded companies and large private companies. I think that's a real world use case that solves a real inefficiency in the market that can actually you know, lead to a, a better life for many people and more productivity and, and greater profits for a lot of businesses. So there's lots of things out there that this tech can, can use. I'm going to leave that up to the application developers. But I, I do think that at the end of the day, finding killer applications is a game of experimentation. It's yes. throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. Try lots of things. Yeah. Most killer apps at one point started as something else. Oh, yeah, Facebook, they do. Yeah, Facebook was a dating site for Ivy Leaguers. That's not a scalable model that was never going to scale, but that's what got it started. And then it became the world's largest community, right? Slack started as like a gaming platform exactly and right. Slack was their internal messaging network. So like you just, you never know where killer app ideas are going to come from. You've got to just try things. You've got to be flexible. You got to iterate. Yes. You got to pivot and keep doing that until you find product market fit. But at the end of the day, you need, in order to bring out the creativity of developers, in order to breed innovation, you need competition. And right now, I think there's too much dry powder, too much VC cash chasing too few ideas, which is why you see the same ideas being recycled over and over again. Lots of investment into infrastructure. Right now, L2s are the hot thing. So there's lots of money going into L2s on top of, the, of Ethereum. Seven months ago, it was ZK L1s and L2s. And the mod and the modular thesis is mixed in there. Rollups as a service got a lot of funding. Now some of the rollups as a service are pivoting like Eclipse. They pivoted to being an SBM, Solana Virtual Machine L2 on top of Ethereum, right? So yes. you just never know what the thing is going to be until you try it. And yeah. in order to have lots of things being tried, you need lots of people that can build in this space. And that's our mission. We like yeah. to say before you get the first billion users, you need the first million developers. And yeah. that's our mission is to onboard those first million developers. We are still so far away from first million developers. Yeah, um, very far. Yes, yeah. I don't know if you read the Electric Capitals yearly. Yep. <laughs> so we read yep. the same data pretty that's much. That's my Bible. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, that the, is. the Electric Capital Developer Report is my Bible. It's what I pound against the table every time I talk to somebody. <laughs> uh, there's, ru there's roughly 26,000 developers currently yes. building in Web3. Most of them are part-time hobby hackers, which is fine. We want lots of hobby hackers. 
that's how good ideas come about is somebody, an idea sparks in a coffee shop while they're talking to a buddy and two weeks later they have a prototype of it. Yeah. And, and the next thing you know, that's a unicorn. So that we need that. We also need full-time developers so that businesses can be built around these application ideas. But ultimately we need more of both. And one of the interesting insights from that developer report, obviously in the bull market, there's more developers coming in yeah. and then they go away. But one of the really interesting things is, is how many one-time developers there are. And the other thing that I take away from that report, if you actually look at the, compare that against the reality of the landscape, is that calling a lot of those people developers is probably being generous. A it lot is. of them are like forking something and making a few changes to it and then deploying it. We need more innovation and competition. Competition is going to lead to crowding in certain ideas, which is going to force other developers to go focus on other ideas. And I think that's how you bring about lots of different things being tried and hopefully killer applications. Yeah. So you know how you also did a survey uh, recently? Yeah. Uh, what were your yep. key findings from that? Yeah. So it's really interesting. Uh, the, the key finding that I took away from it is the major barriers to entry for developers that, that they see. And I think some of this is perception, some of it's reality. The reality is the tooling barrier and the language barrier. And, and so what we found was 40% of the, uh, of the respondents, which was a representative sample of backend and full stack developers, which there's roughly 12 and a half million of, um, within a 4% margin of error. So just so that we lay the, the scientific grounds, the statistical scientific grounds here, uh, 40% of them responded that they would be significantly more likely to build in Web3 if they could just use their existing languages and tools, which is huge. And yeah. we're talking about 5 million developers out there that are basically like, yeah, I would hack in Web3 on the weekends if I could, but I'm not going to go learn a niche language. I'm not going to go take a boot camp. I'm not going to go back to school for this because it's just not big enough yet. On the flip side, about 25% of them said they would go through that glass chewing process if there's more user adoption. So it's this chicken and egg scenario where if you had more users, you get more developers, but I don't think you get more users without having more developers. So the other component of it is, can we knock down those barriers to entry and make it easier for them to build in Web3, let them build, bring users in, then bring the next wave of developers in. The other really interesting insight we saw from it, and I think this is more of a perception than a reality is, that there's a perception that there's a lack of resources available to them. And I think part of that is, we're not going to where they're at and informing them of the, the resources that are available to them. There's plenty of Solidity tutorials and Solidity classes and Solidity examples and, and walkthroughs and all of that stuff. There's tons of them out there, but most of these developers have never seen them before because we're not going to where they are and informing them that they exist. So that's something that we really want to uh, spearhead is make sure we're going into and infiltrating the communities where they live and informing them of the resources that are available to them. And then the last piece, uh, by the way, if anybody wants this, feel free to reach out. And if anybody wants the data, wants to write papers about it or anything like that, feel free to reach out to me. Happy to share it with you. This was not something we conducted on our own. We commissioned it through a third party that's done research surveys for GitHub and Stack Overflow and other big tech companies before and has been focused on developer communities before. How they like to learn was really interesting. So about a quarter of them said they prefer standalone resources like blog posts, tutorials, walkthroughs, whereas almost 70% said they preferred structured learning paths, a 101 to specialization to expert type model that you would get out of a college uh, type model. I found that really interesting because I'm more on the standalone resources side of Me things. Me too. That was <laughs> how I learned. Yeah. I still learn. It's, I'm, yeah. I, I don't code, but I still learn every day. And I might do like a hobby in the weekend <laughs> kind of thing. But yeah. And I don't want to go to university. No way. Yeah. Or even like a structured course of others for court, like the Coursera model, right? Like yeah. here's a specialization in web free development from beginner to expert. And you're going to learn all about what blockchain blockchains are. You're going to learn about some of the specifics of different blockchains. You're going to learn how to write smart contracts. You're going to learn how to specialize in DeFi or SocialFi or GameFi or whatever, right? And then you're going to become an expert and you're going to get a credential. You're going to get some sort of certificate. But I, the reason why, I, so if you look at the survey results, 90% of developers work for a company. Yes. So they're just like regular people, right? 90% of people are not entrepreneurs. 
they want a good job where they're going to support their family. They're going to have the weekends off. They're going to make good money. They're going to have good benefits, but they're also going to have work-life balance and they're going to go home to their family and enjoy their weekend and watch football or soccer or whatever they love to watch and just have a good life. And that's fine. We want that. Not everybody can be an entrepreneur and we don't want everybody to be an entrepreneur. Nothing will get done, right? So that preference for what you do with your life and your risk versus security sort of assessment, I think is one that a lot of us in in this space in particular, because crypto is hyper entrepreneurial, right? The majority of people in crypto are hyper entrepreneurs. And that's why they're in this space. They're at the forefront of a technological revolution. But I think we have to remember, we've got to integrate those, those people that just want a career and want to be able to work a nine to five. And yes, they're a developer, they're software, they're a programmer or engineer, whatever you want to call them, but they want to go home on the weekends and not be bothered. Right. Yeah. And we need those people building in web three as well, whether it's as a hobby or for a web three business, we want them as well. And I think that's why there's such a skew towards structured learning paths. You come out of those structured learning paths with the confidence to go into a technical interview. You come out of those structured learning paths with some sort of certificate that says you're an expert in this particular field. Just this is my gut telling me I haven't gone deeper into this, but just looking at the results organically and taking them for what they are. I think that desire to be able to be to be able to land a good job is overwhelmingly oriented towards going through a structured learning path, whereas the entrepreneurial developer is going to be more oriented towards sort of a standalone, learn what I need and start building it. Yes, yes. But this is completely new to me because I always thought like developers are always (laughs) hacking on the side or always learning and learning new skills. But I think it's also maybe probably depends on the different stage of life and different thinking. And it's just because I've been in in this field for so long that I hang around with so many entrepreneurs and founders. That's the only people I hang around with. So I have a tainted view. (laughs) I I don't see the other side. I'm the same way. Yeah, I'm the same way. And I think we suffer from that in Web3 and crypto as a whole because a lot of us are very entrepreneurial. So I'm very, I was surprised. It took me a little bit by surprise as well. By the way, almost all of them said that they do continuously learn. Like yes. 4% answer that they ne- rarely or never seek out new technologies and new tools. I think a lot of them hobby hack, like having a yes. robust GitHub is important for getting a job either way. That culture is there. Okay. However, yeah. a, a lot of them just, a lot of them do that in order to position themselves for better jobs and to advance their career, which is fine. That's the way that the economy works, right? We need lots of people who want a secure career path in order for the entrepreneurs to be able to to create value anyways. I think we'd be wise not to forget that, that security is important to a lot of people, including developers. Yeah, so I I do think that I'm just reading in between lines that maybe for a lot of developers, they don't see this feel as stable because there is so many ups and downs and that's why there's more people coming in during the bull market times and then a lot of them leaving or or some of them leaving during the beer market times because stability is not there. People need stability. They have to pay the bills. And I think that's why I think the first entry point or the gateway into Web3, which we have some ideas around, needs to be something that is gamified, interactive, that provides incentives. I think that and, and hackathons and hacker houses do that a little bit, but I don't think they go far enough. They're too short lived and they're more of a bonding experience than an actual development experience. Yes. Uh, although some cool stuff does get built at hackathons, usually not production ready stuff, but some stuff does get built. But I think that, that making it fun for them and then embracing and encouraging hobby hacking, the world's most popular operating system is built by hobby hackers. Linux is basically built and maintained by people who do it for fun on the weekends. There's nothing wrong with building out an industry of hobby hackers. As we mature, and and to your point, like volatility and and the lack of stability, I think we also have to remember every Web3 project is a startup. Even Ethereum is a startup. Now it's got a lot of value, but it's seven, eight years old. In Web2, it would be considered a nascent business, right? (laughs) We have to remember that we are very early. There aren't a lot of mature companies built around this technology yet. Everything is a startup. So we're not going to get all the developers to move over, 
but there's 10 to 15% that would make the jump today and another 20, 20% that would hobby hack today. If they could do it without having to learn entirely new skills, they would be doing it today. So I think that's important to remember. And, and those numbers translate to a large amount of developers. We're talking somewhere between two and a half million to five million developers that either would make the full leap into Web3 or would hobby hack in Web3 today if they could. So it's not for a lack of numbers. I think that's pretty large market in order for us to find multiple killer apps. Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty interesting. What's your other, or do you have a completely non-contrarian view about this whole ecosystem, whether it's Web3, blockchain, crypto, anything like that? Non-contrarian view? Oh, I, so my oh, sorry, not non-contrarian, a contrarian view, like something that's not mainstream view. Yeah, I think I've got a few. Most of my views, I think, in some way or another, contrary. And not, it's not to say that other people don't have the same view. But if 90% of people believe in something, I out of principle believe in the other thing. That's just my teacher. Yeah. I, I tend to try to go against the grain. Um, so yeah, I'd say number one, I think my view that I described earlier of blockchains and their node networks being the future, gener the next generation data centers, I think that's relatively contrary. And most people don't it look is. at it that way. Yeah, they um, think that so, they still that, think it's too slow, it's too resource intensive, it's never going to happen. That's how it's too expensive. It doesn't scale. Yeah, and I think all of that, all of that is shallow thinking. I think a yes, it can scale. The whole point of peer to peer compute, and you go can go back and read about this going back to the nineties. The whole point of, and probably before that, but I'm I'm not the, quite that old. But the whole point of peer to peer compute is that it's in theory it's infinitely scalable. We need to build horizontally scalable systems. SUI has done that. What well, we're building it scales horizontally. Solana scales vertically. I, I'd like to see them figure out a way to, to scale Solana horizontally. I think that would benefit the ecosystem a lot. You know, Ethereum is going to implement dank sharding. That'll help it to, to scale a little bit horizontally. I, I think it doesn't do nearly as much as what the ETH Maxi community thinks it's going to do. Uh, and a lot of the modular chains attempt to scale horizontally. So once we get more horizontal scaling mechanisms, like the, the throughput, the, the amount of block space that exists and the cost of, of consuming block space will decline pretty dramatically. Uh, that's the other component of it is the cost right now is prohibitive. We need to get fees down and we need to have better, better gas models, better fee models. One of the benefits of decentralization is that in theory, we should have lots of small node operators. Unfortunately, that hasn't played out in reality. It's mostly been driven and there's been an accumulation effect towards the largest stakers, towards the largest mining pools in proof of work networks. But ideally, in, and in theory, you would have lots of small node operators that are using excess compute resources, excess storage resources on machines that are, they're used as workstations on a day-to-day -day basis, but then at night they're not used at all. And you'd have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of nodes operating. Now, right now, if you're requiring all those nodes to synchronize full state, every state transition, that's not realistic. So you need ways, again, to scale that horizontally, to provide data availability sampling, to reduce the workload on those nodes so that you can scale out the network larger and still have them participate in the network. But by doing so, what you would do is you would drive the cost down because you have a lot more availability and, the, and, and you have a lot higher, if you scale horizontally, you'll have a lot faster and, and higher uh, you'll block propagation. So... There are ways to get there. I don't think we're quite there yet. We're, we're still very nascent uh, as an industry and we're still experimenting and trying things to build large, decentralized, scalable, fast, secure systems. Uh, these are complex problems. I don't want to hand wave them away. Uh, they're complex problems to solve, but there are ways, in my opinion, to solve them. Uh, so I do believe that decentralized compute and decentralized data storage will eventually compete on cost with data centers and centralized storage and, and compute and cloud compute. I do believe we'll be able to compete on cost one day. We're not there yet, yeah. but I do think that's part of the future. It is. And there is a minority of people like quite high up also believe this. I was talking with someone um, who worked quite high up at IBM. And this is a conversation they were having 10, 12 years ago at IBM yep. that, okay, data centers are done like AWS, Google Cloud. And there's, there's probably five or six globally big companies in this space. So yep. What's next? And the next thing even they saw at IBM was this decentralized data storage technology. It's, this yep. is what's the 
future is going to be. So let's go into that and stuff. And so, yeah, but there's a very minority of people. So I do think this is a non-mainstream view and which is true as well. And part of the reason I think it's the non-mainstream view is that there's a lot of people who are very heavily invested in Ethereum. And for good reason. It was the first to launch. Lots of people bought into the ICO. Lots of people mined their coins when it was proof of work very early on. There's lots of people who became very wealthy off of Ethereum. There's almost no scenario where the first version of a technology is the end-all, be-all, best version of that technology. And I think we need to, it's okay to be vested in Ethereum. I think Ethereum has a place. I think it will be the global security layer through stuff, through restaking and, and protocols like Eigenlayer. And I think it will also be a, what I call a whale chain. If you want to send a billion dollars worth of value in 15 seconds or a minute, uh, Ethereum would be the place to do it. It's the most secure chain. If you want to have speed and scalability and, and other things like that, and you want developer flexibility and unique programs, that's going to be done outside of Ethereum. And I think that will even be done outside of L2s. And I think the sooner Ethereum, the Ethereum community and the Ethereum maxis realize what they are, accept what they are and understand what they are is valuable and has a place, but it's not the end all be all, the yes. faster these narratives will change and the more innovation will occur. And I love Ethereum. I, I made a lot of money off of, off of Ethereum myself. So I'm, I'm not in any way bashing Ethereum. It's just the way that it's designed doesn't scale. And that's okay because it can be the security layer that secures scalable systems. But you know how Ethereum has like a five-step plan? Merge was the first, the merge, merge, surge, yeah. all yeah. that. That Wouldn't it be more scalable by the end of all that, which is like 15 years? Because we heard for five years, I had to hear that merge is coming. Yeah. It was always around the corner. It took five years or something. By the time all those things are done, that it would be a lot more scalable and usable. It still won't be there. You still need L2s and yeah. you still need other infrastructure on top of it. But th- that's what ETH maxis generally say. But my mainstream, like non-mainstream view or contrarian view is that, I don't know, why is crypto cultish? Everything becomes a small cult or a small click of these maxis and they like... That's uh, why. (laughs) Yeah, Money, that's why. Yeah, it's money, right? That's why they form into cults because they got in early on something, they made a lot of money off of it and they want to protect (laughs) it. And anybody who criticizes it is potentially criticizing their network. And I originally came into the space thinking we're going to replace fiat currency. But what a lot of people care about is what their fiat net worth in crypto terms actually is. So I think that'll eventually change, but that's a big component of it. To the point of Ethereum scaling, it does. The roadmap that they have laid out, their five-step plan, it will scale Ethereum. Let me be very clear about this to all the ETH maxis out there. It will not scale Ethereum to 10 million transactions per second. I've heard no, people saying this. This is absurd. It's more it like 100,000. 100, that's what it is. And, and, and like you said, I think that's 15 years from now. I think in the five to seven years, we'll probably see 3,000 to 5,000 transactions per second, which is yes. a lot better than where we're at right now. And then you add on top of that, you, you might get to 100,000 transactions per second around there. So the math that I've done, I think we need to be in the millions of transactions per second as an industry. Now, that doesn't mean one chain. That could be across multiple chains. But in order to actually bring to reality the promises of this technology, we need to reach millions of transactions per second. And the more we can get, whether it's cross-chain compatibility or have that concentrated on a single in a single global state, the better off we are. The more, more composability we get. Yes. The more integratability we get, the easier it is to build applications on top of it. So yeah, long-term, I think Ethereum does scale. I just don't think it does it fast enough in order to, what's going to happen if a developer builds something and they and their users are paying $25 to interact with it on top of Ethereum, or they're using an L2 that's completely centralized, guarded by a multi-sig, and settles their transactions back to Ethereum once every 15 minutes. That's not an ideal scenario. And on top of that, their ecosystem is siloed off and the, the user has to bridge, which by the way, bridging is the most dangerous thing you can do in crypto. Proportionally relative to TVL in bridges versus TVL and DeFi, it's 10 times more dangerous to bridge than it is to, to put your, your tokens in a DeFi protocol uh, in terms of the amount of exploits and hacks that there have been on bridges. Uh, so the whole user experience is just not ideal right now with the L2 scaling roadmap. And 
look, I think it's a solution. I don't think it's the best solution. I still think you need to scale the L1. And ultimately, I think Ethereum does do that. They just do it way too late. Yep. Yep. So in order to make this uh, a reality, do you have a ask? Is there anything you're looking for? Are you hiring, raising capital, anything? Feel free to share whatever your ask is. We're working on onboarding developers to our beta. Our beta is going to launch sometime late October, early November. We're fast marching towards that. So getting people to try our platform out and give us feedback. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And then on top of that, the things that you do, go and tell the world about it, right? Help us build out our developer community, create that network effect, that positive flywheel effect. So if you're a developer, if you're tired of chewing glass on other chains, if you want a better developer experience, or if you want to break into Web3 and you're currently building in Web2, but you have an interest in Web3, reach out to us. Uh, You you can find us on Twitter. It's at Versatus Labs. That's B-E-R-S-A-T-U-S Labs. Our our website is versat.us, B-E-R-S-A-T dot U-S. Uh, It's basically just Versatus, but with a a dot before the U-S. And yeah, feel free to reach out to me on Telegram. I'm ASmithDSTS on Telegram, ASmithDSTS. And then on Twitter, my personal Twitter is DSTS Founder. So yeah, feel free to reach out to us. We also have a Telegram community on our website. You can find our Telegram community. You can find our Discord community. They're relatively small right now, but that's by design. We haven't done a lot of promotion of ourselves. That'll start soon. But yeah, if you're a developer out there, please help us make sure that we're delivering the best developer experience possible. That's our goal. And the only way we can do that is if we get feedback from actual developers. So come sign up, be a part of our beta. There will be some benefits to the beta developers. I'll just leave it at that for regulatory and legal purposes, but there will be some benefits to the beta developers. So please come in and and join our beta. Fantastic. No, that sounds very good. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, wish you best of luck in building Mercedes. So fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate it, Sam. Thanks so much. I really had a good time chatting with you. And yeah, excited to get some feedback from your community about what we're building. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening or watching this episode of the Web3 with Sam Kamani podcast. By now, you know the drill. Leave a comment or share this episode with a friend and leave a review. I would love to hear from you. So that's why my DMs are open. Reach out to me, especially if you are a founder building a product in Web3 then I would love to hear from you. What are your challenges? Is there anything that I can help you or my community can help you with? Thank you once again and wish you best of luck in building your startup or your project.